What makes a church the church? Believe it or not, there's been quite a bit of debate over this. A lot of ink spilled and trees killed in this discussion. Some argue that for the church to be the true church, it must be of a certain denomination. Others say the church building where the church meets must look a certain way. Building with the steeple or no, they met in homes in the first century, so we got to meet in homes. Some say uh, that the true church must be led by a choir uh, director in a choir with choir robes. Others say, no, it's got to be a praise band. Some say that the church must be governed in a certain way. must be a plurality of elders. No, it must be led by the congregation. Some say the, the, the pastor must preach from a certain translation of the Bible in order for the church to be the church. Lots of debate on this. This is one of the many reasons why I'm thankful for the scholarship of the reformers because they wrote quite a bit on this. One of my favorite reformers, Martin Luther, said when he is uh, talking about what makes the church the church, he says the true church clearly teaches preaches, explains, proclaims the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the true church rightly administers the sacraments, or what we call the ordinances. An ordinance is a, a decree, a rule, a law, a command. And when used in the church, in evangelical circles, it refers to that which has been issued or established by Christ himself. And in the scriptures, we see two. We see two ordinances given to us by the Lord Jesus, communion and baptism. So according to Luther, you have essentially three marks of a true church. In layman's terms, a church preaches the gospel and practices communion and baptism. Last week, we talked about the Lord's Supper. We talked about communion. We're going to be talking about baptism today, and then we're going to dive right back in to the Gospel of Luke. I haven't forgotten about it, for those of you all concerned. All right? So get back next week as we continue on through Luke. But believers, I hope you're, you're encouraged this morning because it's 2019. Here we are, close to 2,000 years after these, these ordinances were established by our Lord and practiced by the first church. And here we are, this morning, we are a gospel-centered church. Not a week goes by where the gospel is not the focus in our music that we sing and in the sermons that we preach. And we also have communion on a monthly basis at the end of each month on a regular basis and we baptize believers. We're going to talk about baptism this morning. Now, it's important for me to let you know that there are a lot of disagreements within the church, many of which you know about both the mode and the meaning of baptism. A lot of, lot of differences. Again, a lot of, a lot of ink spilled on debating this. So I want to share with you this morning what, what we as leaders, what we as a church believe the Bible teaches about baptism. Now, like I said last week, normally what we do, for those of you all visiting with us, Normally what we do here on Sunday mornings, we just go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through books of 
the Bible. We're in Luke right now. And uh, that's the way I prefer to preach each and every Sunday with just a few exceptions. And this is one of the exceptions this morning. And the reason why is because baptism is vital. Baptism is so very important. Look at the first point here. Baptism is required of believers. It's required of believers. Now, this first point is an important point to make because many do not believe that it is. I read a report recently that said in our world today, we have the largest group of unbaptized professing Christians in the history of the church. And the stat guys believe that one of the main reasons for this is because of this ever-growing individualistic consumerist mentality among believers today. We've said this, we've talked about this in the past. Many today, they don't believe the local church is necessary at all. Those in the first century would have thought that would be the weirdest thing ever for a believer to not be a part of the local church. But many don't believe that it's needed today, that it's necessary at best. Many prefer to just watch the preachers on TV from their house. You know what happens when they watch the preachers on TV from their house? Not only are they disconnected from the body of Christ, but they don't see baptisms because they don't televise those. When they join a church, if they do join a church, they do so for the purpose of speaking in and trying to set the agenda so that the church will function in a way that best benefits them. And they don't enter into the church with the desire to sit under the preaching and teaching and authority of the Word of God and allow themselves to be shaped by it. And as a result of that, this large number of unbaptized believers continues to rise. That's a problem because baptism is vital. It's commanded for the church to baptize new believers. In Matthew 28, Verse 19, up on the screen, he says in his Great Commission passage, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus told his followers, as they go out from the church, they're to bring people into the church. They are to escort non-believers to Christ. And when non-believers, they, they forsake their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation, Jesus says you are then to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, so Jesus commissions his disciples here in Matthew 28 to go out, start new churches, share the gospel. When new converts are made, they are to be baptized. And church, this is our responsibility as well. So Christ commanded that the church baptize new believers. Christ also commanded new believers to be baptized. I mean, that's assumed in the passage in Matthew and in what we learn from the sermon of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Look at this verse up on the screen, Acts 2.38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In this passage, 
Peter has just finished preaching the gospel to a large crowd of non-believing Jews. And many, after hearing him preach, they are convicted by his message. So they ask Peter, Peter, what, what are we to do? And Peter responds very clearly. He says, you are to repent. You are to turn from your sin. You are to give your life up and over to the Lord. You are to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. And then you are to follow up after that decision with baptism. He, he tells the Gentiles the same thing in Acts chapter 10, verse 48, when the Spirit of God does a work there amongst the Gentiles. It says, and Peter commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a command. When we trust in Christ alone for our salvation, God tells us very clearly in his word to then be baptized. And I want to break for just a minute and ask you a very, very simple, direct question. Believers, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? I don't care what happened to you as a baby, okay? Talk about that in a minute talking about being baptized after salvation, which I believe Scripture clearly calls for us to do. Have you been baptized? I think there's a lot of folks in, in the first service and in this service who have, who have not. This is you. Listen, you're going to have a wonderful opportunity this next week. We're going to set up the baptistry here in the church, and I want to give you an opportunity to... Follow in obedience and follow the Lord in believer's baptism. I don't care how old you are or how young you are. This is your opportunity. You can make an appointment to meet with me or Bill or John or Jimmy this week to talk about it. We're going to be available to you for that throughout the week. Make this appointment to do this golden opportunity next week. Your, your challenge this week in your study guide is to get this right because baptism is vital. It is commanded for believers and we want our believers to be obedient. So if you have any questions, see us this week. Now, as I said earlier, there is some confusion on baptism. Though it's important that we understand that it's important, that it's commanded, some take this ordinance a bit too far. They teach that the act of baptism actually takes away sin, that it is salvific, that it saves. And they'll use verses like the one I just shared with you, Acts 2.38, to prove their point. Many argue that because Peter is speaking of baptism in close connection with salvation, they believe that Peter is teaching to be forgiven of sin, one must be baptized. Well, that leads us to our second point about baptism, and it's this. While baptism is required for all believers, Scripture also teaches, point number two, baptism is not salvific, meaning it does not save. We use clean water. Here at Fellowship, we do. Fresh water, yeah, amen. It can in no way wash away sins. No water, no matter how clean, can do that. Only God can clean us up from the inside out through the work of His Spirit. 
For those who argue that the passage we looked at in Acts 2.38 teaches one is forgiven through baptism, that the actual act of baptism is what saves us, they need to continue studying their Bible some more. Keep studying until you get to Ephesians. Where Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, look at it up on the screen. For by grace you have been saved. Y'all know this passage, right? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. Underline that. This is not your own doing. You need to be reminded of that for other reasons as well. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of works. Underline that. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Those are important phrases. Not your own doing. Not a result of works. Now, let me ask you, if we were saved through the act of baptism, would Paul's words be true here? No. I mean, it's an, it's an act that we do. Baptism does not save. Paul makes that crystal clear. Salvation is not a work that we do. It's a gift of God. Look again at Acts 2.38. I've got it up on the screen. I know I'm jumping around. I won't do that next week. I'll behave. But look at it. That's why I've got it up on the screen. He says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what I believe Peter is saying here. I believe he is calling for those, those unbelievers who are inquiring about salvation. He is calling for them to repent of their sins and become followers of Christ and then be baptized as a result of them being forgiven, to show forth the fact that they are true followers of Jesus. Let me explain why I believe that. History tells us that prior to the church and prior to the earthly ministry of Jesus, the Jews practiced baptism. If you were a Gentile in this day and you wanted to be associated with the people of God and follow the one true God, then as a Gentile, you would be baptized to show that you are now associated with, affiliated with the Jewish people. There were, there were a, a lot of, uh, Cornelius was one in, in the New Testament that, that we read about that were not Jewish ethnically, but they were Jewish by their association, followers of the one true God. We're going to talk about John when we get back into the book of Luke. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And so those being baptized in John's day, they were showing that they were associated with sinners in need of salvation. Now, Jesus was not a sinner, right? But he was baptized to show that he was associating with these sinful people on their behalf in order to save them, live a perfect life for them, to do what they failed to do. So, so he associates himself with sinners, though he was not a sinner, in order to save sinners. So, so that was John's baptism. And then when we get to Christian baptism that, that Jesus calls for here, we learn that not only is baptism to be an outward picture of an inward reality, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but it was also it was to show who were associated with the kingdom of God, the local church, God's people, His believers. When one is coming forward to be baptized, they are showing us as a, as a church that they are now numbered with God's people. 
It's very, very important. They are showing the gospel through their actions and that they are trusting in Christ like us believers and they are now numbered among us. It's very, very important. Remember what Paul said to the Gentiles in Ephesians? You're like, yeah, sure. I'll tell you. Ephesians 2.19. Look at it. Look at it up on the screen. He's talking about Gentiles who are now numbered with the Jewish people through faith in Christ and how they become one. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Baptism shows this reality. It's not the means through which one is forgiven of sin and brought into the household of God, but it is the public practice that highlights that reality. That's essentially what Paul is calling for in Acts 2. He's saying, repent, turn from your sin, trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then be baptized in the name of Christ to show the world that you're His and that you belong with His people. So when Peter is asked by his Jewish audience, what shall we do to be saved? That's his answer. You're to become a part of God's kingdom people through repentance and faith in Christ. And you're to be baptized so that you can show the world that you are His and that you belong with His people. And this brings us right to our next point about baptism, and it's this. Because Scripture teaches that baptism is to be a result of repentance and faith, we should then assume that baptism is reserved for believers. It's for believers. There are certain groups of evangelicals that I, that I respect, that I, that I love, that I have learned from, that disagree on this. They practice infant baptism. Some theologically conservative Presbyterians believe this. One of my heroes in the faith, R.C. Sproul, he, he believed and practiced infant baptism. He passed away this past year, so I, I believe he's been corrected on this doctrine. I do. I don't mean that in a mean way, really. But I, I, I truly believe he's been corrected. And a lot of us will be corrected on other things, right? But I believe with baptism, it's clear. Many in this camp, they, they believe and teach that baptism is like circumcision was in the Old Testament for infants, and it's to be administered to all infants of believing parents. And though a lot of them do not believe this act of sprinkling an infant saves the child, some do. Some believe it removes original sin. Some believe it, it, it proves their election. Others say that it just starts them down the correct path to be saved. Now, we don't have time to go into all the, the, the details of, of what they believe and counteract those. I'll, I'll spare you of that. That's a different lesson all on its own. But I want to give you a brief, simple explanation on why I disagree with them. One is because there is no account anywhere in the New Testament where an infant is baptized. And nowhere are we told to do it. The reason why I disagree with those who hold to infant baptism is because I believe the Bible clearly teaches that baptism is to follow salvation. Let me give you a few examples. Acts 8, we have the detailed account of, of Philip sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And we get the sense that after he hears the gospel from Philip, from the book of Isaiah, yes, you can preach the gospel from Isaiah and other Old Testament passages, Christ all throughout the Bible, 
This Ethiopian eunuch believes, and then we're told he's baptized. In Acts 10, 47 through 48, we are told that those who are in the house of Cornelius heard the word of the Lord and believed and received the Holy Spirit and were baptized in the name of Christ. In Acts 16, 25 through 34, we're told that all of those in the household of that Philippian jailer, they believed and were saved. Luke records for us, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to them and we're told they believed on the Lord Jesus and were saved and were baptized. Same is true of Crispus, who was a ruler of the synagogue in Corinth. We're told in Acts 18, 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, some will hear that and they'll go, aha, you see there? It says their household. Not just those individuals, but their entire household. That might include young kiddos. If they had infants in the home, that would include them. Well, work with me for just a moment. Let me have everyone who is representing just one member of your family raise your hand this morning. Let's see how many households we have represented this morning. Okay? Yeah. At least one person should be raising their hand, right? Okay? How many infants do you have in your house right now? How many? One, two, three, four, five, okay, a few, but a lot, self-included. They're not, right? So to assume that the households that responded and, and were, were saved included infants who were baptized, that's a huge leap to make. I also want to show you something else. We're told in this passage that they heard the gospel, they understood it, they responded to it by believing in it and were told, in the case with the Philippian jailer, that they rejoiced. Now, infants don't do any of that. They may hear somebody talking, but they don't hear and cognitively understand the gospel message and respond in belief and rejoice as a result of them being baptized. You see? So, Scripture clearly teaches that baptism follows conversion. Those in this church... In this church here at Fellowship who come for baptism, they've already made decisions for Christ. They're trusting in Him alone for salvation. They're simply coming to make it public. So if that's true, let me ask you this. If salvation is a work that has already taken place in a follower of Christ prior to baptism, what's the big fuss? What's, what's the big fuss? Why take baptism seriously? Why are we adamant about getting this right? Well, one of the reasons is because God commands it. I mean, that should be what motivates us more than anything, right? God has told us to do it in his word. But we also learn from scripture that baptism serves as a public and vivid illustration of salvation, which brings us to our fourth point. Point number four. Baptism is an illustration of salvation. I said with communion that all of us as believers, we have the opportunity to preach the gospel by taking communion together. Same is true with baptism. Great opportunity to preach the gospel. It's an illustration of salvation, an outward picture of what is to be a, an inward spiritual reality. In Galatians 2.20, Paul describes it in this way, salvation. Look at it up on the screen. He says... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That right there is a picture that baptism paints. When one goes down into the water, it's a picture of being crucified with Christ. It's a picture of death. Being immersed is a picture of, of identifying with Christ in death. And when we come up out of the water, it's a picture of the new life we now have and live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's a picture of salvation. Believers, there was a time in your life, when you were going at life on your own, following the sin of Adam, apart from and opposed to God. But there was a time, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're a true believer, there was a time in your life when you, God showed you your sin and you forsook that sin, you turned from that sin, you gave your life up and over to the Lord Jesus Christ. You died of your old ways of living. You were raised, you were changed born again from the inside out and raised to walk in newness of life with them. That's the picture that baptism paints. That's one of the reasons why we baptize by immersion and not by sprinkling or pouring. I believe the symbolism is lost in those practices. The proper mode of baptism is immersion. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo, which means to plunge to plunge, to immerse. Mark 1.5, people are being baptized by John in the Jordan River. Words matter, they count. Not beside it, not by it, not near it, but in it. Mark also tells us when Jesus had been baptized, he came up out of the water, which we can assume if he came up out of the water, he went down into the water. When Philip had shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, as they went along the road, they came along some water. Scripture tells us that they both went down into the water. Then it says they came up out of the water. So we baptize by immersion because that's the proper mode we see scripturally, but also because of the picture it depicts. It's a picture of salvation. Well, there's one final point about baptism, and it's this. It's an important one. Baptism is a reason to rejoice. Look back at the account of the Philippian jailer. Acts 16, 32 through 34, up on the screen. Look at the last line there. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. You ever been to a baptism and it feels like a funeral? People are just sort of somber. Some of them are indifferent. Some of them are half asleep. Baptism is not to be like that. It's a, it's a celebration. We learn that from this jailer here along with this family. They, they rejoiced. Which, by the way, the, the, again, the fact that they rejoiced shows that they were true believers, right? What's well, a reason to rejoice? When someone comes forward to be baptized, they are showing the church that they have been changed, that they have been rescued, that their allegiances have changed from themselves to the Savior. Well, that's a reason to celebrate, is it not? If ever there was a reason, there's a reason there. Listen to what Wayne Grudem says about it. Man, I can't say it better than this right here. 
Get your phones out, take a picture of it. And all the discussion over the mode of baptism and the disputes over its meaning, it's easy for Christians to lose sight of the significance and beauty of baptism and to disregard the tremendous blessing that accompanies this ceremony. The amazing picture of passing through the waters of judgment safely, of dying and rising with Christ, and of having our sins washed away are truths of momentous and eternal proportion and ought to be an occasion for giving great glory and praise to God. If ever there was a time for shouting, for celebration, it's during baptism. I pray that we would treat baptism as a celebration. Again, if you're trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, golden opportunity next week to follow in believer's baptism. Contact us at the church. Talk with me or Jimmy or John or Bill. Let me end with this. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. We've learned clearly this morning, baptism is for believers. That means before one is baptized, they must first be saved. They must be, they must be rescued from sin. And in order to be rescued from sin, we must come to grips with the fact that we are a sinner and forsake that sin and bow the knee to King Jesus. Before being washed in the waters of baptism, one must first be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you been washed? Have you been cleansed, not outside, but, but from the inside out? Have you been born again? Have you been buried with Christ and raised with Him in newness of life through faith alone in Him alone? That's where you must begin. That's the reason why Christ came. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He lived among us and for us the perfect life that we could never live. He also laid his life down. He rose again so that we could be washed in his blood, so that we could be changed from the inside out, so that we could be rescued and restored to a right relationship with the living God. Have you been rescued and restored? Have you been born again? Are you trusting in Christ alone for salvation? I pray you would today and be saved. Let's pray.